Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Sarah Ebravaya Stein, who teaches at UCLA, here to talk about her new book, Saharan Jews and the Fate of French Algeria, published in 2014 by the University of Chicago Press. Sarah, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Sarah Ebravaya Stein, who teaches at UCLA, here to talk about her new book, Saharan Jews and the Fate of French Algeria, published in 2014 by the University of Chicago Press. Sarah, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Well, we're, we're glad to have you on the show. So, Sarah, let's start with some basic geography and historical context. Could you uh, tell us briefly when and how Fr- the French came to control Algeria, and maybe give us a preview of the North-South Divide? Sure. Um, well, the, the story of the French colonization of Algeria is quite important for those of us who work on Middle Eastern Jewries because it is seen as, um, in some sense, a great exception and, in some sense, an exception that has provided a conceptual rule for historians. And I'll come back to that point in a moment. Uh, the French colonization of Algeria began in 1830, um, when French forces landed on uh, the shores of the southern Mediterranean. And um, over the successive decades, the French established control over, through a, a campaign of intense violence, over most of northern Algeria, um, including the what would later be called the central administrative departments of Algeria that would legally be absorbed into the French um, body politic legally, but that did not mean that its residents were granted equal rights. Now, by contrast, there is a um, substantially larger geographic region in the south of Algeria that was not conquered until later. Um, this book is about the southern zone of Algeria, the Algerian Sahara, which um, is conquered in waves. Um, it takes approximately 50 years, but the particular region that I am writing about, which is the Mizab Valley, um, um, the conquest of that region began with a negotiation in 1853 and was resolved in with occupation and annexation in 1882. Um, now, this region of the Mizab, for those who don't have a map in front of them, is located about 600 kilometers south of Algiers. Um, 
in really the northern part of the Algerian Sahara. Um, and what fascinated me about this region was that I began by mentioning the legal exception and, and anomaly and also sort of um, conceptual model of Algeria for historians of both colonialism and of Jews. That is because um, in Algeria in the year 1870, French um, administrators working in tandem with the French military put in place a very unusual ruling called the Cremieux Decree, by which they granted citizenship to French subjects of uh, the colonial authorities in Algeria. However, the southern region of Algerian, the Sahara and the Mazab Valley in particular, which is home to several thousand Jews, was not yet conquered. And some years later, when that region is conquered, the determination is reached that the Jews in the south of Algeria will not be grandfathered in to the Kremlin Decree. And therefore, what emerges is a legal binary between Jews who reside in the north of Algeria, who are the demographic majority of Algerian Jewry, and a, small, a far smaller population of Jews who reside in the south of Algeria, who for the following eight decades of colonial rule will be legally treated in the same manner that France treats Muslim residents of Algeria. That is to say, they will be subjects of France, but they will not um, be granted the rights of citizens. And that was a long-winded answer, but just to quickly go back again to the point with which I began, this is a really fascinating story because it upends the classic narrative that historians have offered about Jews and Algeria, Jews and colonial France, um, and Jews in the Middle East, which is that we have this case, Algeria, which provides us with evidence that colonial rule could benefit Jews. And here we have a very different story indeed. Uh, I have about 20 follow-up questions. So <laughs> okay. where, where, where to begin? Um, so would you say that the Jews in the southern part, in the Mazab, what specifically, um, what's, what's, in what specific ways was their treatment harsher mm -hmm. uh, than, than their uh, co-religionists to, to the north? Right. It's a, it's a good and it's a complicated question. Um, well, what does it mean to be granted citizenship if you are a Jew in northern Algeria? Um, that means that you are treated as a French citizen, the same um, and, and a subject of, with French nationality, in the very same way that you would be if you were a Jew in continental France, who, of course, had been emancipated um, um, decades earlier with the 1791 um, proclamation granting Jews citizenship. So this would mean that you could be put into French public schools. It means you could vote if you were a, a man before um, before rights were given, voting rights were given to women. It means that you could have forms of representation. It means you would be funneled into public health networks um, and all public services offered citizens of France. Now, if you are a Muslim in northern Algeria, or if you are, if you, or if you are a Muslim anywhere in Algeria and a subject of France, or if you are a Jew living in the south, in the zones outside of so-called Northern Algeria. And maybe in a minute we can talk about how that line between North and South is policed because it's actually very difficult to police. Mm -hmm. um, 
So if you're a Muslim in Algeria or if you're a Southern Algerian Jew, you are denied all measure of rights, most evidently including uh, legal representation, um, the ability to vote, um, and, and have um, a, a political equality and, and a political voice, but also the various services that are granted citizenry but not granted colonial subjects. So this creates a, um, this creates, um, a very embedded system of, um, of tiers within society by which some um, are allowed to thrive politically, economically, um, and others are under the thumb of a military regime inclined towards violence um, and disinterested in uh, protecting in any measure um, those subjects of colonial France who are not citizens. Right. So most of the history that's been written about the Jews of French Algeria is about the North. Um, probably not surprisingly, it was demographically larger. Um, how did you get interested in this sort of anomalous, smaller community of the Jews of the Mazab? Yeah, on the face of it, it would appear to be a tangential story. On the face of it, you might think of it as a footnote to the larger story of Algerian Jewish history, or even a footnote to the history of uh, North Africa or the Middle Eastern colonial world, um, where Jews were represented uh, you know, athwart the region. But what fascinated me was that this community that could be perceived as marginal, um, in fact, their story pushes us to reconsider the fundamental typologies that we have used to understand Middle Eastern Jewish history, and, and Algeria in particular, but even more broadly, um, the literature has gone so far as to suggest that Jews in the Middle East and North Africa experienced a soft form of colonialism or were beneficiaries of colonialism. And certainly this is very much at the forefront of the way in which uh, Algerian Jewish history is discussed. But as you say, rightly, Algerian Jewish history up until now has by and large focused primarily on the northern coastal cities, um, relegating reference to this southern community to a footnote, which it was perceived to be. And my point is that in the book, um, which I think is really an undercurrent in my writing more generally, is that sometimes in order to re-examine the general arc of Jewish history in order to rethink its geography, its chronology, um, its, its engine, and also its cultural shape. In order to do all those things, we often have to look outside the places that until now have been perceived to be paradigmatic and find um, different models of modern Jewish experiences. Uh, in this case, I'm really interested primarily in the law. So here in the experience, the modern Jewish experience of um, the shaping of, of law in the colonial world, in order to ask new questions about what it meant to be um, not only a Jew in a, in a modernizing world, but a Jew in uh, North Africa under colonial control. Right. So tell us, what is, what is legal pluralism and how does it fit in or not fit in yeah. to the story of the Mizabi Jews? Okay. So uh, legal pluralism is a concept that scholars of legal history and legal studies have, have played with for quite some time um, to describe a landscape of multiple overlapping legal orders. So this might mean, for example, that in a place like Morocco, you would have a, um, 
you would you could have consular courts or in Egypt consular courts you could have Sharia courts you could have Jewish courts um, you could also have colonial or or so-called public courts um, and others have written in marvelous fashion including um, Jessica Marglin and uh, Mary Lewis uh, about how Jews in the Mediterranean and in North Africa are extremely adept at navigating environments of legal pluralism, um, visiting various kinds of courts, not just the Jewish court, various kinds of courts. Will Hanley also writes about this and um, Julia Clancy Smith in wonderful ways, um, but they can cannily take their cases to the court that they think will serve them best. That's called forum shopping, And sometimes right? that's right. That's called forum shopping. So um, Algeria, in some sense, does not provide us with um, the same kind of legally pluralistic environment that we find elsewhere in the Middle East and North Africa, although it's not devoid of legal pluralism. Um, but um, some of the... Uh, because of the firm hand of French control over law in in the region, some forms of um, of of legal options that create a diversely and legally pluralistic environment elsewhere are attenuated in Algeria. This is I'm trying to simplify what's what's in fact a very complex story. But when it comes to the Jews of the South, which I, I gather is where your your question is moving, the the point I make is that. Um, we have a unique environment in southern Algeria where Jews are not citizens of the state as are Jews in northern Algeria, but nor are they precisely colonial subjects in the same way that Jews come to be or are colonial subjects elsewhere in North Africa or the Middle East, um, which is in many, many cases accompanied by the creation of a legally pluralistic environment, the creation or the tolerance of a legally pluralistic environment. So um, in addition to being deprived of citizenship, Jews like Muslims um, in Algeria, Jews in the South, um, cannot, do not have certain legal rights granted Jews in the North, but they also, because of the unique, um, the unique contours of military rule in the Algerian Sahara, they also do not have access to consular courts, for example, which become key sites of adjudication for legal issues for Jews elsewhere. And there are other examples, but the point is that their legal options are artificially narrowed because both of policy and of the nature of, of military control in this zone. Right. Um, I, I want to ask a couple of questions about the, the community. If you were to sort of pop in to the Mazabi Jewish community, uh, you know, in, during your story. Um, first of all, what language would they be speaking? Mm -hmm. And second of all, um, would you, would, would their customs be familiar to us? Mm -hmm. um, well, so Jews have lived in the Sahara since the medieval period, um, both in um, what we would now call the northern part of the Algerian Sahara, but also in eastern Libya uh, and southeastern Morocco. And to answer that question, I think we actually have to look backwards to uh, the time before colonial rule is imposed, in which these Saharan Jewish communities are connected by many, many threads um, of commerce and of migration, of religious practice and law, um, by culture, by travel, um, by family ties. 
Um, so Jews are, since the medieval period, traveling through the Sahara, living in the Sahara, operating as uh, merchants, as religious emissaries, um, using trading routes. And this is very, very crucial, trading routes that connect um, the Sahara both on a north-south axis and also on an east-west axis, and which make uh, towns and in the Sahara crucial trading centers. So um, many of the, the sources disagree about why Jews came to the Mazab and even disagree about when. Um, and there are different theories about this, which I rehearse in the book, but perhaps is not so useful to repeat here. But the point is that they likely came in the 14th century, um, probably from the Tunisian island of Jerba, um, probably came by invitation of the Ibadite uh, leadership of the Mazab, and um, remained there for centuries, constantly having their community uh, rejuvenated, supplemented by migration from other parts of the Sahara and beyond, um, were mostly um, small shop owners or working with um, as artisans. Um, there begins to be a middle and upper class that emerges in the time period I, I cover in the book, and an, even an upper class that emerges um, in the late 1950s and 1960s, when there's an oil boom in the south of Algeria. But by and large, this is a relatively um, poor population in the aggregate, although there, there is wealth uh, and traders who have quite um, ambitious portfolios. Um, interestingly enough, the sources also disagree about what languages they spoke. They certainly were Arabophone, Arabic-speaking. Arguably, they were probably also bilingual Berbophone. Um, certainly used Hebrew as a religious, a language of religious ritual, although as in many, many places of the Jewish world, um, would not, fluency in, in Hebrew would not be widespread, even reading fluency. Um, this is a small community, as I said earlier, several thousand. Um, and you ask, would, would this community be recognizable? Um, and this is an interesting and not entirely simple question to answer, because, of course, it depends on who's doing the recognizing. Um, Jews elsewhere in Algeria were also, by and large, poor, and men worked on small scale, you know, as artisans and um, barely subsisting, essentially. Um, they, this is not an urban community, but in, in the fact that it is not an urban community, again, it would resemble many, many Jewish communities across the Middle East and, and Mediterranean at, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that Saharan Jews were connected to a regional network that was extremely important to North Africa and to Central Africa West Africa and East Africa uh, from the medieval period onward. They were deeply embedded in this context. What happens with the imposition of French rule over southern Algeria, and, and, and this, this is really sort of the kicker argument of the book, what happens is that French law and policy artificially divides this community off from others, such that they come to seem unrecognizable. They come to seem different even though taking the long historical view, 
they were simply a part of an incredibly diverse and vibrant cultural and economic landscape that did not recognize the boundaries that came to be established under colonial rule and which continue to subdivide the region today. So this question of um, recognizability, I think, is actually the central question that we have to unpack when we think about the Algerian Sahara. Right. And and so it, um, I think what you're saying is political and bureaucratic and legal institutions create categories. Is that right? Can you, yeah, can you that tell is us what you mean by it. that? That is part of it, that, um, that law creates categories. Military policy creates categories. Those categories in turn have a bearing on very, very banal decisions that one makes in one's everyday life. Where does one's children go to school? What, what language do you speak? Where do you go when you need to see a doctor? Um, what kind of papers do you need if you want to, let's say, travel to Palestine to bury a parent or, um, or expand your business in a new direction? Um, and we've been speaking in abstraction so far, but I think it's worth pointing out that the book is actually full of stories of individuals. It isn't really written in a highly abstracted manner. It seeks to think about how ordinary women and men and families negotiated the laws that colonialism imposed upon them. Um, the other piece that we haven't mentioned that I would add to, to your question is about social science. Um, law creates difference. Policy creates difference. Perception creates a sense of, of difference between peoples. But social science also was crucial, and by that I mean anthropologists, um, ethnographers, historians, um, medical researchers, many of whom were actually implicated with the colonial authorities. They, their writing about the Saharan Jewish community in Algeria, I argue in the book, over many, many decades and continuing all the way through the Algerian War of Independence, which, um, which exists from 1954 to 1962, Social scientific writing actually exaggerates and calcifies the sense of difference that Saharan Jews possessed. Um, and one of the one of the sentences I, I uh, employ in the book, which I think kind of vividly captured the, captures this in my own mind, is that these Jews who were called indigenous within the French legal system, um, it, that these Jews. What I say in the book is indigenous Jews are made, not found. But what many social scientists thought, including many, as I said a moment ago, who were ethnographers or public health officials who represented the colonial authorities or worked in tandem with the colonial authorities, they had a different perception. They thought when they went to southern Algeria that they were discovering a community stuck in time, a community cut off, um, in the words of one social scientist who I um, exploring in great detail, they think they're discovering a social isolate. Um, and my point, again, is that this is produced under colonial and military rule rather than being the natural um, feature of an isolated community. For, in fact, Saharan Jews were anything but isolated um, through their long history. Right. Um 
tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to research the book. You mentioned that you it used 30 archives across six countries. Yeah. Is that right? Um, that sounds about tell right. Us, tell, tell, tell us about yeah. some of the work that you did. Well, so so many books, I think one sets out to write a different kind of book and you end up writing something that you didn't anticipate. And that's sort of the wonderful thing about writing is that you change your mind while you go. And the wonderful thing about being a historian, which is that you discover evidence that proves that you're wrong about certain things or proves you've been looking in the wrong places or that there's an interesting story that was just at the edge of your lens. Um, when I started working on this project, I thought, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought that it would represent a piece of a larger study about how Mediterranean and Middle Eastern Jewries um, navigate the legal orders that accompanied um, both the rise and fall of modern colonialism. But as I investigated this, case of Southern Algerian Jewry, which again, I, I thought at the outset might be one case study of a handful. What shocked me is that this community, which as I said a moment ago, so many had perceived as isolated and anomalous and exotic and foreign, this community had been written about by so many kinds of observers and had been written about by members of the community as well over so many decades, such that one could find extensive information about um, this relatively small and from the perspective of historical research, rather forgotten community of Southern Algerian Jews in archives um, across the world um, and archives held by many different kinds of um, collectors and purveyors of knowledge from state archives in Israel or in France or Algeria to um, the archives of Jewish philanthropies in London or Paris or in private hands in, in Israel or in the United States, um, material that had been gathered by social scientists that um, in coming from the United States, um, a missionary organization in Rome. Um, so the, my path to the book in some way, I think, was paved by my own shock at how there was this discordance between the notion of a marginal community on the one hand, and on the other hand, the archival trail, which suggested that this community had inspired so many people to write about it, to visit it, to analyze it, to um, use it as a, a cause celebre for various reasons. Um, and often these narratives were at odds with one another, especially around key events like uh, the Algerian War or like the, the, what the future legal fate should be of this community when uh, the decolonization of Algeria uh, was underway. So that those numbers of archives um, tell a story about simply the sources I use, but they also, I think, tell a story about the way my interest was grabbed by this project um, and the extent to which I'm interested in not only the history of a community, but in the process of how knowledge is constructed about modern Jews. Mm. There's so much more I want to ask, but I, I'm cognizant of the time. So let's jump ahead. What happens in 1962, 63 um, when, when Algeria gains independence and then 
what did you uh, find when you went to the Mizab in the last couple of years, right? Yeah. 2012? I, I visited twice. Um, let me maybe answer your first question and then tell you a little bit about, about what I what I found in my archival and um, visits there. Um, so what happens in the Mizab is, is, is I think, quite fascinating. Um, as the Algerian War of Independence is still in its very bloody middle, um, but perhaps beginning to wind down in the winter of 1961, um, anticipating the and witnessing the emigration of holders of French citizenship from Algeria to France and elsewhere, um, and, and people who are leaving anticipating the creation of an independent Algeria, witnessing that, and we're talking about a, a large numbers of people, especially who leave um, by the summer of, of 19, beginning the summer of 1961, um, the roughly 150,000 Jews from Northern Algeria, um, as many as a million um, Algerians of European descent, um, known as Pied Noir, and perhaps 100,000 Muslim Algerians who uh, were known as Harkis, who fought on the side of the French. So there is this mass flight at the moment that the Algerian, that the conclusion of the Algerian war becomes um, perceived by many as inevitable, and the moment at which the independence of Algeria seems to be inevitable. Precisely at this confusing and chaotic moment, French administers, administrators look to southern Algeria and they conclude that they have a problem. And the problem is that this community of Jews who until this moment, and I'm talking again about, let's say, the summer of 1961, the winter of 1961, this community, which was not legally akin to the Jewish community of the north, if Algeria becomes independent, that community will not have the legal right to join the emigre flow of Jews and Muslims and Christians who are being, quote unquote, repatriated. It's a complicated and not terribly precise and, and politically charged word. Um, <laughs> we may have time for that or we may not, but this suddenly seems a problem. Now, this community, again, for 80 years had been under colonial control, Southern Algerian community, and for 80 years had been legally treated as indigène. That's the legal term, indigenous subject, subject to, rather than um, state law, what's called local civil status law. This had not really proved to be a problem from the administrative perspective. Perhaps the community was too far, perhaps it was too small, perhaps it wasn't politically powerful enough. But now with the independence of Algeria um, on the horizon, what I argue in the book is that for, the, for French administrators, this community suddenly becomes a conceptual problem and a problem of popular perception. And what I mean by that is that... Um, people begin to, be, to write about this community and write about how this community has been betrayed by France. And in a very, very hasty fashion, um, an administrator who is serving in the Mazab, um, a man by the name of Jean Moriat, is charged with creating a civil registry 
that will document everyone born in the Mazab, every Jew, excuse me, born in the Mazab, which will allow French administrators to retroactively grant these Jews citizenship, thereby permitting them to join the population of those fleeing or returning to France. Again, these words are charged and political. Um, at this time, though, there are others with competing interests, and especially representatives of the state of Israel, who prefer to imagine that this community would upend the Algerian Jewish trend. The Algerian Jewish trend is to emigrate to France, not to Israel. But there is hope within Israel that this community of Jews, which could be perceived as having been betrayed by France, there is hope that, uh, that they will go to Israel. So suddenly, at the end of the Algerian War, there are various forces who descend upon this small community. At the same time, community activists are seeking to um, make their own choices uh, about where, what the community's fate should be. Uh, but it, in this environment, the um, French essentially pass legislation, the French National Assembly passes legislation granting the Jews citizenship allowing them the opportunity, the possibility that they will leave um, on the very eve of Algerian independence. And Jews had been emigrating from the Mazab, many, in fact, bucking the trend of northern Algerian Jews who tended to go to France. They had been leaving and going to Israel um, since the 1940s through the 1950s. Um, many who went to Israel, it, it seems, actually left, but, but others stayed. And now... Um, in the summer of 1961, the remaining community is counted by the French. They are granted, um, and I say retroactive citizenship, that, that word might need some explanation. They're granted retroactive citizenship in the sense that they are issued new birth certificates. So it's not enough for them simply to be now labeled French subjects. They're actually, their history in a sense is rewritten um, at this moment of, of administrative chaos and um, virtually the entire extant community, which already had been diminished by immigration, but leaves at the time just as the war is coming to an end. Um, and the first chapter of the book is dedicated to rethinking the perception of a social scientist, an American social scientist um, named Lloyd Cabot Briggs, who is there in the Mazab, witnessing their departure, along with his um, his co-author, um, who who witnesses and, and co-writes the book with him. Um, so they, many of them, at that last dash moment, are taken to southern France, to Strasbourg, and uh, that therefore becomes strange repatriates to a country which they had never called their own. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very dramatic chapter, I would say, not only in the history of colonial law and the Algerian war, but in the history of these families whose, whose fate is very much up in the air um, over these months. Some members of the community stay, just as some members of the northern Algerian Jewish community stay for a, a whole host of reasons. Um, usually political, but sometimes having to do with, um, with need. Um, and the fate of those who stay in the Mazab, as I described in the book, is not, is not so 
um, it's not so pretty. So, so that gives you, it's a, it, there's, there's a great deal that is unfolding in those last years of the Algerian war. And I'm, I'm rushing through, through the history of that moment now. Um, but I know you asked me a second question, so I can, well, shall I try and segue to the question of, of what I, what I found when I, when I went? Yeah. Um, hold on one second. Okay. I'm just going to make a note, um, because we are, we are well over time. Okay. So, um, yes. Um, let, let me just ask it again so that we can, we can make it sound a little bit more, um, neat when we edit it. So I'll just, um, um, Okay, so I'll say, okay, ready? Mm -hmm. And so what did you uh, find when you visited uh, the Mazab in uh, 2009 and 2012? Well, it was it was very fascinating for me to, to visit. Um, it isn't entirely easy to acquire um, a visa to go to Algeria as an American citizen and perhaps a scholar of Jewish studies particularly. Um, I tried to go to third point, um, but uh, was not granted a visa at that time. Um, the Mazab is, consists, uh, the Mazab Valley um, is beautiful. It consists of um, five oasis cities um, each of which has a um, date grove, which is both a source of, um, of commerce and also a place to which the community can, the wealthier members of the community can retreat in, in the hottest months. They, these are extremely distinctive communities, um, recognizable for a unique form of um, architecture and urban planning that is one reason that the Mazab Valley as a whole was named a World Heritage Site by UNESCO in um, 1982. And that architecture is very much in evidence in the Mazab, um, especially the, the fact of these towns being organized around um, concentric circles that emanate outward from mosques at the middle to ramport, ramparts that surround the cities and the, the date um, the, the palm groves are are on the, the edges of, of those towns. So I was able to visit the space um, of these of Gardea, where the, the majority of the Mazavi Jews lived, and and the neighboring towns. But I was and I was able to visit um, certain extant sites of the Jewish community, in particular the, the Jewish cemetery and the site of the Jewish synagogue. Um, and I conclude the book by talking about this visit and um, the complexities of, of what I found. Um, the, the Jewish cemetery is um, in reasonably decent shape, overseen by um, a Muslim keeper in the same way that cemeteries in the north of Algeria are overseen in many instances by um, tenders of the cemetery who um, sometimes have grown up on the site being the son of men who, who did the same. Um, what was quite arresting and what I write about in the epilogue of the book is that the synagogue of Gardea is, um, by contrast, in shambles, despite the fact that the UNESCO naming of the Mazab as a World Heritage Site has meant that a lot of money has been poured into, into these towns, um, supplemented also by 
um, the proceeds from the oil and gas pipelines that emanate in the region. Um, so the towns of the Mizab in general have been preserved with a great deal of attention and care. Um, by contrast, the synagogue is um, in shambles, as I say, um, filled with litter, um, possibly inhabited by uh, a, a mentally imbalanced youth, at least what, as one person told me, with cats wandering about. Um, I was able to enter the synagogue during my first visit and not during my second. A padlock had been added. Um, but in the book, what I describe is that the existence of this decayed and ignored um, synagogue to me symbols the complexity of the memory of Jewish history in Algeria. Um, not simply the Algerian Sahara, but in Algeria generally. And I um, have written in the popular press, actually, about a, a recent announcement that there would be an attempt to preserve the synagogues of Algeria, which was um, announced in the summer of 2014 by the minister of, of um, by, by a, a prominent minister. It doesn't, it isn't clear that that um, promise will be realized. Um, but Algerian traces of Algerian Jewish history are um, everywhere um, and at the same time sort of institutionally and officially denied. Um, I went not only to be a tourist, but also to be a scholar. And I visited um, several archives in the Mazab, including the municipal archives of, of Gardea and the archives of the um, missionary organization, the White Fathers. And in both places, I found tremendous, beautiful material pertaining to um, the history of Jews in that region, um, which very much informed my book and indeed illustrated it, because in the White Fathers archive in particular, um, they held a tremendous collection of a rare um, stereographic photograph. Um, so I found a great deal. I learned a great deal. And there were things I didn't find as well. And um, in the conclusion of the book, I, I talk about not only the material I found, but material that remained missing. And so much of Algerian Jewish history, I think, has to be written against and in conversation with sources that we don't know at the moment where they are. They may be hiding in archives. They may be, as is um, the Geniza of Gardea, they may be buried in plain sight, as it were, metaphorically and literally. Um, but due to many complexities pertaining to the history of Algeria, um, many of these sources have been either perceived to be inaccessible or are indeed inaccessible, um, or simply we await a new generation of scholars who will unearth them. Um, for the first time. Dara, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Saharan Jews and the Fate of French Algeria, published in 2014 by the University of Chicago Press. The author is Sarah Ebrevaya Stein. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.